0: Hey, it's Steven Henderson, and today on the podcast, We are going to continue Detroit Today's Reckoning 375 series, a look at the removal of the I-375 highway spur on the east side of downtown Detroit and the plan to replace it with a boulevard. In this series, we have been discussing this project from a bunch of different angles. We've spoken with people from Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, the two neighborhoods that were destroyed when I-375 and the neighborhoods around it were constructed. We've talked with people on the state's advisory committee to ask them what they hope to see from this project. And we spoke with a historian about what Black Bottom meant to people in Detroit and why the highway was constructed to destroy it in the first place. We've talked with folks from the Michigan Department of Transportation as well. That is the department that's in charge of this project to understand what is their guiding principle for this whole endeavor. But at a really fundamental level, this project is about transit. I-375 is a road, a federal road, constructed to get people from one place to another quickly and efficiently. And what's going to replace I-375, at least according to the current plans, is another road. A road on the surface with many lanes that are designed with transit front of mind. Or is that? what it does. Is a multi-lane road analogous in size and function to many other roads we have in Detroit? Think of the spokes in our city, Gratiot, Michigan, Grand River, Jefferson. Is that the right model, even from a transit perspective, for what should come after I-375 is gone? It seems like that's a question that should have been the first one we asked about the project, a kind of ground zero for discussion about what we're trying to achieve. But because this project flows through the Michigan Department of Transportation, which is the agency charged with planning and spending around federal transportation dollars, there was never really any question about the road. Destroy one road, build another. That's all MDOT really does. We shouldn't have expected much else, given the structure of this project. Later in the program, we're going to talk with two urban planners who have worked to think about what the highway removal project could be, what it should look like, how it should feel to the people who are living there. But before we get there, we want to talk about roads and transit as they relate to the I-375 project. If one of our goals is to make better pathways, not just for cars, but also for pedestrians and bikes and other road using interests, are we even close to achieving that with these current plans? And if not, what would be a better approach? We start today with two guests. Megan Owens is the executive director of Transportation Riders United, a public transit advocacy organization here in Detroit. Megan, welcome back to Detroit Today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And we have Todd Scott with us. He is the executive director of the Detroit Greenways Coalition. Todd, welcome back to Detroit Today as well. Thank you, Stephen. So I want to start with uh, both of you uh, talking about what I was just talking about, the transit dynamic and dimension of this I-375 Project. The plans that are on the board right now say we'll take what is a six lane highway and essentially raise it to the surface, make uh, a road that is somewhat similar in size, uh, would perform many of the same functions. I would love to hear what the two of you think about that idea, just as a starting point. Megan, I'm going to start with you. Is this the right way to reimagine a highway?
1: I do believe that they've started in the right direction. Um, I generally believe that getting rid of the the, the sort of moat, uh, the, the ditch that that blocked off the edge of downtown... Uh, from the whole east side is is definitely a step in the right direction uh, and the idea of having it be a surface street uh, is a is a, is a good step as well and they've at least made some efforts to incorporate um uh bike and and pedestrian features but as you noted uh mdot knows how to build highways. Uh, that is that is what they do. That is what they know. Uh, and um, and they're they and some of it is what they've been directed to do. Mm-hmm. Um we're actually exploring how can we change the guidance the, the state guidelines for for what m dot should be doing, but uh, they are they one of their primary focuses is how to make sure to move as many cars through as possible with the minimal amount of traffic slowdown mm-hmm. so uh, th- they've at least acknowledged that they're going to reevaluate some of the the traffic studies to see if maybe they could do fewer lanes but my biggest concern is uh, that it's still prime the primary purpose of this mm-hmm. corridor will still be to move cars as smoothly as possible with very minimal attention to how to move actual people Hmm. um, and and really making this something that is uh, convenient and attractive for people to walk around, um, especially if there are opportunities to add in um, businesses or other features right along the road. So really, what is it going to look like from from an individual human perspective on their feet or on, on a bike? That's where they need to to improve the design.
0: Okay, so Megan, you just bumped up against what I think is a cardinal rule here Mm -hmm. in Southeast Michigan. You want to separate the idea of the interest of cars from the interest of people. Uh, most people here i think don't make that distinction right uh, this is uh, the home of the car this is the home the original home of the sunken freeway uh, in this in this country everything we do is designed around the idea of getting cars from one place to another you seem to be suggesting that that there's something else we should be thinking about talk about why you think that's true and and how our notions of transit when we talk about transit in this country have changed in many other places uh, to separate those two things cars are not people moving cars is not the same as moving people
1: absolutely and that that is definitely the big transformation that we are trying to take that we are pushing uh, uh, leaders at the state and elsewhere to take is to recognize cars are one way to move people around, but they're rarely the best way and they're far from the only way. Uh, and it ties back to so many other efforts. Uh, and that's one of the challenges is this project, like so many others,
2: mm-hmm.
1: is done kind of in isolation. Um, the That... Um, That If you look at the discussions that are happening around climate solutions, uh, having just a car-centered system doesn't work. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about what's going to attract more people to to, uh, come and live and stay in Michigan, building an entire system around just cars doesn't work. Uh, If you talk about the affordability challenges that so many working families are having. So the idea of giving people options for getting around that are more than just cars not excluding the cars in the vast majority of situations um but uh but really truly giving equal value to someone who is walking on foot someone who is on a bicycle someone who is pushing a stroller someone who's getting off of a bus and needs to get the last few blocks to where they're going that truly needs to be at least equal value, if not greater, mm. uh, priority. Uh, in at least in our cities, again, if MDOT's building a uh, uh, rebuilding a highway out in the middle of a rural area, maybe the the measures are different. But in our cities, we really need a people first. Uh, people need to be a priority over pavement, and that's going to be a that's a slow transition, but one I think we're starting to make.
0: Mm. Yeah. Uh, Todd Scott, I want to bring you into the conversation here. And have you addressed that same question? Uh, the, the plans to replace I-375 with a very wide boulevard, many lanes, uh, and, and centered on this idea of uh, quickly getting cars to where they need to go. Is that the right way to think about transit? Uh, In the 21st century, is it the right way to think about transit in the middle of a city?
3: No, I don't think it is and I think I think it was about 15 years ago that the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan brought in one of the top Traffic engineers in the country Ian Lockwood. He presented on many Transportation projects we could do in Detroit one being the removal of I-375 and what struck me when he said people should not have the expectations that they can travel at 55 miles an hour without stopping within a downtown that's not what downtowns are, and um, it's it's we've spent a lot of money, a lot of transportation dollars um, to build this infrastructure to, to allow this to happen, and we have taken up a lot of land with it as well. And so I think this this project is an opportunity to to put in a lower cost solution that frees up land, um, and then also gives us the opportunity to improve biking and walking. But you know our biggest concern is is. You know, when the, when the freeway is below grade, you can, you can cross over it on a bridge when you're biking or walking. You don't have to deal with all that traffic. But by bringing it up to, um, to the same level, now we're going to have to deal with that traffic primarily at the intersections. So the focus of our, our work has been on how do we minimize the size of these intersections to make it easier and safer for people on foot or, or biking to get across them.
0: So, so Todd, we, we don't have to imagine that. In, in Detroit. We, we have examples of streets that we built a long time ago and made very wide so that uh, lots of cars could move across them all at the same time and, and quickly get them from one place to another. Uh, the spokes that I was talking about in the open, streets like Gratiot or Jefferson uh, or Grand River that were does, uh, part of the city's original design to try to get people around are wide boulevard uh, streets uh, they are they are uh, uh, they are ubiquitous almost uh, in, in our in our city so so when you talk about trying to to figure out ways to get people safely across these uh, these streets when they're not in a car when they're on foot or they're on a bike, Um, uh, What do we know about how that works? Uh, Talk about some of the other places where we're doing this and and how well it works out when the street is six lanes or maybe even seven if there's a, a, a turn lane.
3: Yeah, so I mean, we've been um, involved with uh, road diets. Um, you know, when you when you reduce the amount of travel lanes on Detroit streets, we've been involved in that for, for many years now, and we've seen the results. Um, they help slow traffic. They help bring um, more private investment to the street. They revitalize streets. Um, it's you're balancing the priorities between moving cars and uh, the, the communities through which these roads travel. And um, we want to make sure that with 375, you're not overbuilding it, creating a, a road that five or 10 years down the road, we're going we're to need to do a road diet on. I mean, that would be just a tremendous waste of resources. So let's, let's get these new traffic counts uh, post-COVID. Let's see what the real demand is for this road, see where we can narrow down the number of lanes, especially at the intersections, and build a road that we won't have to fix in 10 years.
0: Yeah. So you used a term there that, that I want to drill down on just a little bit, road diet. Uh, I know what that means. Uh, you know what that means. I'm not sure most people do or most of our listeners do. When you say road diet, uh, what, what is it that you're referring to?
3: Sure. A road diet is when you, when you look at the number of uh, travel lanes that you have and the carrying capacity of the road, how many cars can it handle, And then you look at the actual number of cars that are using it, mostly in Detroit, you have so much excess capacity that you can take a four-lane road, convert it to a three-lane road, and have more than enough carrying capacity for all the vehicles. And by doing so, there are benefits because now a a pedestrian crossing the road only has to cross three lanes, with the middle lane often being a a place of refuge. Um, It slows uh, speeders. I know that's a big, big concern in in Detroit. The number of people who are are speeding. So it has a lot of benefits to it, um, and uh, we are we're seeing it happen on on roads all across Detroit um, w- with great results.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I, I
0: want to ask. I, yeah, go ahead, Megan.
1: I was going to say I will say sometimes uh, the the language that is used around uh, road diets is 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 tricky because really it's a shifting of the of the road usage um in most cases it's saying cars are not the only purpose for this road uh and we want to make sure that someone walking along the sidewalk has plenty of space and feels safe we want to feel make sure someone who's biking along that road has plenty of space and is is truly safe uh so shifting from car-only lanes to other usage uses of that roadway is really how I like to think about um, the road diet.
0: Mm. So, so I want to ask both of you about something that uh, a listener has written in and and asked about, and that I've heard a number of people, as we've been doing these this these uh, these mini series episodes about I three seventy five, have suggested. The idea of capping a freeway, um, kind of like what we did on Six Ninety Six in the suburbs here in some places, when that was, when that was built back in the in the late eighties, um, uh, as a way of creating space for uh, lower level traffic, pedestrians, bikes, what have you, and maintaining the freeway. Right. Uh, so if you you built over I-375 and then didn't have the concerns about making sure that people can get into the east side of, of downtown uh, as fast as they possibly can. Would that would that be a better way? Would that be something that we sh- should be thinking about um, when we're talking about uh, removing I-375? Uh, Todd, I'll stop. I mean, yeah, go ahead, Megan.
1: I was just going to say, I think that's that's certainly an option. Um And I think that's something that should definitely be looked at for 75 through, uh, the sort of entertainment stadium district, uh, because you do more or less need to maintain 75 through there. But I would go back to what Todd said, why do we have this assumption that you should be able to drive 55, um, or faster in a a dense urban area? Hmm. And I, I think if you asked m dot they would say the the costs for for that are far far higher so i don't think that was seriously considered for yeah capping okay. so if you were to have the highway underneath and then um basically you almost tunnel it uh, they they did that to some extent in in boston with the big dig and it was extraordinarily expensive so i don't see it as necess- as realistic or even necessary hmm. 375. It's. I mean, it'll add whatever, 30 seconds to somebody's trip if they need to take, uh, uh, if they if they need to travel this corridor to get a, a, the, the full length of this corridor, is adding 30 seconds to somebody's trip um, worth it to actually make this street into something that uh that it's really part of the local community as opposed to a barrier to the local community yeah yeah
0: Uh, Todd, i want to have you address that but i also want to have you address what you would say are you know the Mm -hmm. first kind of few questions we should be beginning with here if we were going to rethink what they're already planning to do from a a more uh, uh, pedestrian bike uh, greenway friendly perspective where would we start? but but also uh, talk uh, talk some about this idea of, of of capping and creating you know land that you could do something other than the highway with.
3: Yeah, so I mean, I, I love the 696 capping. I, I also don't love how it draw takes in so much transportation dollars to constantly repair. I don't think it's a, a, a wise investment moving forward. It's just an extremely expensive uh, piece of transportation infrastructure. It's totally not justified for 375, given the low amount of uh, traffic that, are, that um, are on that road. Um, and even with I-75, it brings up other issues with the inability to, to um, move some, some freight, such as hazardous materials, uh, underneath those structures. Hmm. Uh, I think there has been a movement to um, do what's called an extended, a, a widened bridge. And there has been some discussions of doing that over I seventy five in in the uh, yeah,
0: I got, like arena district Woodward, there yeah, right
3: yeah and so you widen the bridge so much that you can you can actually lease the the bridge uh, uh, land and then w- for people walking biking or even driving you don't even realize you're on a bridge anymore
1: right
3: um, so I think that's probably the better option but again for three seventy five given the low number of, of vehicles. It's just not justified um i mean we do have to look there's, there's there's not unlimited transportation dollars and we it would be sure it would be beautiful to have a capped freeway with a beautiful park on top but you know we have a lot of other priorities too and we can't we can't put all our money just into one project yeah. um with respect to the, to the greenway i will say that there's some you know we do have a lot of concerns about crossing the new uh boulevard but we will say that some of the connections that are being built with this project are going to be amazing. I think the, especially the Montcalm connection hmm. that runs between Ford Field and Eastern Market, that is just a, an important uh, connection that does reconnect the community in a way that um, we haven't seen uh, since the highway uh, first went in. And I mean, because if you're standing at Ford Field and you want to give someone directions on how to get to Eastern Market, it's, it's not easy, uh, especially if you're biking or walking. And so with this new connection... I think it's going to really open things up and opportunities for people to use bikes for transportation, for recreation. Um, So we're really supportive of that. We're we're also really pleased to see the um, biking and walking greenway along uh, the boulevard and have been working with MDOT to see that it it becomes a great greenway with beautiful trees and and landscaping. So it's a a place you want to be, not just a, a, a paved path next to a very busy road.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, Uh, Megan Owens and Todd Scott, really great to have both of you here uh, to talk about uh, the transit perspective of the I 375 removal project. Thanks for being here on Detroit today. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the I-375 project and the concerns that people living in the surrounding neighborhood may need to consider if the highway is removed. We're going to be joined by two urban planners who have done work here in Detroit to hear what they think of what MDOT is planning and what the state is up to. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. What should people be thinking about and concerned about as we reshape that community with a new road, but also with land that will probably want to be Uh, developed, uh, things that we will have in that area that we don't have now. That's where we continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And to talk about this, we have uh, Harley Etienne with us. He is an associate professor of city and regional planning at The Ohio State University. He was part of the winning team for the Midtown Cultural Center Planning Initiative here in the city of Detroit. Professor Etienne, welcome back to Detroit Today.
4: Thank you so much for having me again.
0: Also with us is Brian Boyer. He's an assistant professor at the University of Michigan and a faculty director of the urban technology degree program. He's also a Lafayette Park resident. Lafayette Park is one of the neighborhoods that was constructed uh, as part of the destruction of Black Bottom. Uh, Brian Boyer is a committee member uh, on the I-375 project. Professor Boyer, welcome back to Detroit Today.
5: Good morning. Yeah. Good morning to Harley, also.
0: Um, so uh, I, I want to start here, and I and and have both of you address what the people who live in the area around I three seventy five should be hopeful about and what they should be worried about with regards to the idea of removing this highway. One of the things that I have found really interesting about talking to people who live in the area uh, about this project is the, the the varied opinions about whether the highway should be removed at all, uh, but, but also about what should should happen uh, in its place. So I wonder from uh, a planning and design Perspective: What you see as uh, as positives about what we're planning, uh, and and things that you see as as negatives or or, or challenges. Uh, Professor Etienne, I'll start with you.
4: Sure. Um, well, thanks for the great question. I would say one of the things is it's often not what you do; it's how you do it. Hmm. Um, so I think a big part of this to consider thirty-one new acres coming online. Um, in the heart of a major metropolitan area, um, that's significant, um, whether it's highway or some other means. Um, so to consider the connectivity, um, in the previous segment this was discussed, um, the idea that you can get between Lafayette Park and Eastern Market and Bush Park uh, much more quickly, that's a great positive. Um, I think on the negative, it's the how. So who gets to make the decision Um, How uh, has the public informed the design Um, and who are the developers who will benefit from the new development opportunities that are going to become available um, when this is done? Um, So I think for me, that is probably the last point is probably the most important, Hmm. uh, because in many ways, um, we think about reparative justice um, and how would you try to in any way um, address some of the wrongs. Um, that the highways construction created, um, that how is going to be the the most important question.
0: So, so, uh, that word has been thrown around in the discussion of this project since the beginning. Uh, Reparative. Uh, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg used it when he described the money that is going to pay for these things. Uh, uh, MDOT, uh, our, our state highway Transportation Agency has used the word and, and the city of Detroit has, has used that word. And yet, I think if you look at the plans that we have now, it's hard to see where that word might apply. So I, I wonder if you can talk about what you mean when you talk about uh, a reparative process and I guess what it would look like.
4: So I think in some senses, what we have to do is actually have a full airing of the history. We actually need good history to kind of inform what happened. So people throw around different numbers. Is it 100,000 people who were displaced? Is it 130? Was it six doctor's offices? Was it 12? Um, how many jazz clubs? How many businesses? That you actually have to kind of actually map that out. Um, the second thing is actually do some analytics. And I think this is where Brian and some of the work that he and his colleagues do at Michigan, can come in handy, which is thinking about the data and the analytics of this. And so, were the highway not put in place, um, and those homes and businesses allowed to grow and appreciate in value with time, um, what would they have been worth? Um, and how would you begin to address that? Um, so, some of this is going to be the issue of just the archival project of finding the people with descendants. They are around, um, but um, but not all of them. And so. Uh, there's a question of when you find them, do they get the right of first refusal on development, on um, business opportunities, development opportunities, housing opportunities? Um, that I mean, I, I think reparations is different than reparative justice. Mm-hmm. I would separate the, I think they're under an umbrella. They're under a penumbra together. Um, but one is a direct policy uh, kind of response, and, and I don't think that should be off the table. Another is in terms of creating a process through which people might get to uh, kind of be first in line, let's say, um, for, for some of the opportunities that might created by opening up 31 acres of urban land.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, so, Professor Boyer, in addition to, uh, you know, uh, being a, an urban design uh, expert, uh, you're also a Lafayette Park resident, so this is this is on your front doorstep. So I'm really curious uh, about what you see as the hopeful aspects of what's planned for I-375 and the things that, that you think uh, maybe present more of a challenge.
5: Sure. You know, I think from a hopeful standpoint, one of the things that I hear in the neighborhood is if we're going to do this, And, you know, there was a period where people didn't all agree that we should be raising the highway, but if we're going to do it, then we should do it right, and we should take advantage of this as a really special opportunity, as Harley was describing, to not just create a vibrant place after the project's done, but to do it in a really sensitive way that recognizes that it's built on hallowed ground and if we can do that then we're creating something that is a model for the rest of the country Mm. where highways are being considered all over the place to be removed or replaced with other uh, transportation means and so I, i think that's exciting because that means that we can do something that's first of all really ambitious uh that connects to detroit's history of doing hard stuff and puts us in the lead in terms of having an honest conversation about questions like reparative justice so you know the the possibilities are huge but the current reality and the proposal it just isn't quite matching it mm-hmm. and so I think one of the challenges that uh you know we or or one of the questions that we see is what's going to happen with the land so if you take those 31 acres and you fill it with large parking decks serving the stadium Uh, people are going to have a very different opinion about that than if it's filled with affordable housing, local businesses, and institutions like a local library. So, you know, getting to more clarity about what will actually fill the space and how it will be filled is uh, one of the great sources, I think, of anxiety in the neighborhood.
0: Yeah. What, what, from your perspective, would make sense, both in terms of process and outcome— Uh, in that discussion about what to do with with this land. It's a considerable amount of land. It will be on either side of the road that replaces I-375. And I think, um, you know, uh, a crude way to, to think of it is that part of this will be in downtown Detroit proper, and part of it will be uh essentially part of lafayette park and and uh, all the way up maybe to to east to the beginning of eastern eastern market what should we be thinking about and talking about as we th- think about those those two spaces and and what should be there?
5: In my opinion, there are two sides of this, and the Harley mentioned one, which is doing the history and making an effort to bring people into this conversation who have a family or historical connection to the neighborhoods of Paradise Valley and Black Bottom. To date, uh, I've only met one person at one of the meetings related to this project who had a family connection. You know, that's pretty shocking. It's Mm -hmm. been going since, I've been involved at least since 2017. So then I think I would switch to a mode of, you know, we could talk all day about uh, bike lanes versus roads, transit, all these kinds of details. But a framework I would use is thinking, feeling, hearing, seeing. If we transport ourselves to this place after the construction is done and the dust is settled, what are we going to be thinking about? What are we going to be feeling in that place? What might we hear and what might we see? And I think it's critical to use a lens like that because it pulls us out of the silos of transit versus land use. It pulls us out of the procedural questions and really focuses on the values of what we're trying to do together here with this very special opportunity in front of Detroit and the region in Southeast Michigan. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Before we get to listeners, uh, Professor Adien, I want to have you talk a little about the work that you've done here in Detroit before uh, the Midtown Cultural Center Planning Initiative uh, and how that, in your, in your view, uh, reflected some of the things that you're talking about us doing or, or having to do uh, around I-375. What did we learn from what happened in Midtown uh, that could apply here?
4: You know, I, I'm not sure it's a perfect, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, counter example to the highway only because there wasn't the same kind of displacement to build it. Sure, um, you know that collection of institutions really, you know, was assembled over time. The intention was to start with the library and then the DIA. Um, Wayne State was not quite a thing, so I think once you have those institutions sitting together. Um, our project really was seeking to stitch them together. So I think what, where there is some parallel uh, between the two projects is we really, our design uh, really tried to create an environment and is trying to create an environment um, where different faces of Detroit actually engage um, in a civil space. Um, And so the idea that you're not rushing between the institutions and no one, one institution Really has primacy, and so I would imagine here, um, thinking about Lafayette Park and downtown, um, that Lafayette Park be its own thing. Downtown is, of course, center, but that you you actually get to connect these things that are different to one another, um, and stitch them kind of physically together, but then also socially and economically together. Um, so that they're actually facing one another and people are are interacting in, in really uh, new and interesting ways.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. Let's start today with uh, Sarita in Detroit. Uh, Sarita, welcome to the show.
2: Good morning, Stephen. Mm-hmm. I just had a quick comment. One of your guests made the comment that to date he'd only made, met one family or one person with a family connection to Black Bottom. And I would just like to really say that that should not be the gauge. My mother lived in Black Bottom, her family. But no, I'm not going to drag my 81-year-old mother to a meeting yet because I haven't seen the need. Mm-hmm. I have been to a meeting through my work. And I wasn't impressed yet with the effort. So if there's going to be a real effort, I think we should just say, yes, there are likely many families who still have a connection to Black Bottom, but their call hasn't been made because this is not yet true reparation.
0: Yeah, Sarita, that's a, really, that's a really important point. And before I go back to our guests to, to talk about it, I want to have you talk just a little more about what you think A process could look like. I I, I have said this many times, uh, and we've had to say this many times, it is not hard to find the families of people who lived in Black Bottom or had businesses in Paradise Valley. This is a really small town in that way. And uh, all of us who live here know people who have histories in that area. And yet, uh, when you talk to some of the officials who are uh, who are doing this, they talk about the difficulty, quote unquote, of trying to stitch all of that back together. But but since you are someone with with connections to that, uh, to that area, tell me, Sarita, what what you think they should be doing? How should they be approaching this to make sure that those voices are part of it? Well, uh,
2: the approach, again, it it's more I don't think the. I really don't agree with the way the community engagement's been done Mm -hmm. and so again but that's always the fear that people have in doing community engagement if we actually go and ask you what you want we don't think we can give you what we you want we don't even want to really know what you want so we're going to tell you and, and hope it sounds good and that you'll accept it and be happy with it and so there was never a start to say we recognize it was a horrible it was horrible and even when your, your guest commented on the fact of, of homes and, and businesses, it was beyond homes and businesses. My grandmother was a renter, but still her children were displaced. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to move. They had to go to a different school. There's so much history connected to it that I think there's this fear of opening up the Pandora's box. But, no, if you want to really do it, you should have started with this community meeting. What do you have the resources to actually do? And then ask people, well, what could we do with it? You cannot replace people. I mean, there's, but at least there could be. There could be symbolic reparations. Mm-hmm. There could be statements. There could be history about it. There's lots that you could do, but I think you're kind of afraid to actually to to do it the right way.
0: Yeah, uh, Sarita, really appreciate uh, the call and uh, and that perspective. I, I I will note that in this series, uh, one of the things that we've done is take a look at some other places. Uh, we had a really long conversation with uh, someone in New Orleans who was involved in the effort there to rethink the way I-10 went through uh, went through black neighborhoods in, in that city and they did front uh, that that uh, idea of engagement in that in that project and they didn't just make it about well let's listen to people they shaped the project around what they heard from those folks, and so that is uh, taking uh, shape in a way that that respects what the people who are there now and the people who were there before want to uh, want to do, and and so I mean it, it it's possible. Uh, it, it's not out of reach to, to, to do it that way, uh, and I think that's a, that's a really important point to make. I want to go back to our guests to address what Sarita's talking about, though, and, and Brian Boyer in particular. Uh, you were the one who, who noted that you have not come across um, uh, very many uh, people from that neighborhood uh, in, the, in the engagement uh, that, that's taken place around around this process. Uh, what's, what's your reaction to what Sarita's saying about how we're doing this?
5: Oh, I, I think Sarita's comment was a perfect summary of uh, what has happened to date. And I completely agree that uh, there's not really a reason for people to make an effort to show up because the conversation has been um, semi-serious. So you know, even the question of what are the priorities with this project, it's one of the questions that came up at a previous meeting. And we were shown a slide of 12 different topics that are oppositional in some cases. So, you know, tra- uh, speed of traffic through the corridor versus pedestrian safety. Those two things, you can't max out both of them. Uh, there's a trade-off between the two. And so at Senator, uh, State Senator Stephanie Chang's town hall recently, some mm-hmm. University of Michigan students ran an exercise to ask people who were there what their priorities were. And the top two that came out were pedestrian safety and recognizing, acknowledging the history of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. Yeah. The last item on the list was traffic and congestion. Hmm. So hmm. even saying clearly, this is what the priority is, is a way of signaling to people that there's going to be a serious conversation about the things that matter to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Professor, at the end, uh, you you mentioned uh, this idea of the difference between reparations and a reparative process. I think another important distinction is uh, is between listening and responding. In other words, you can hold all of the town halls you want to have people come out and say what's important to them, tell their stories, uh, point out what the history is. It's another thing to take that and make it the, the, the driving force behind the decision making. And I think that, that that's an important gap, uh, that, that Sarita is, is, is pointing out, uh, here in, in this I-375 project.
4: Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I, when you look at the budget for this project, you look at a hundred million dollars for this, you know, are you doing civic engagement on, you know, um, Scott shape and bubble gun? I, I don't know what they're actually investing in that, but if you invested, you know, you know, let's just say, just I'm going to throw a number out here. If you threw 50000 $100,000, 150000 just at the community engagement, that's a very robust, you know, process that could actually hear people um, and gather history and kind of inform the process. There's something just to, to insert here, you know, within that reparative justice is the need to recognize that due process failed here hmm. for people to have been Given 30 days to relocate their homes or businesses to find schools, churches, et cetera, um, she's correct. It, you know, it wasn't just homes and businesses, um, and you get 30 days, no hearing, no right to remain in place, um, and no justice. Um, you know, in that moment, but then also here in this quote reparative process, are you actually kind of appealing that by not actually investing in a true airing and hearing? Um, about the history, but also about the process. Uh, and so in that way, you know, you can see some mirrors between the two things, both, you know, history may not repeat itself, but it certainly runs. Uh, uh,
0: Professor Atten, you also talked about the importance of just acknowledging what happened, not just in the in the engagement process, but in, in the outcomes here, the, the ways in which we create something that acknowledges what happened uh, is important. And, and we are also not really that close to, to, to doing that. I mean, MDOT has said uh, it plans some sort of historical marker uh, to, to, to note what was there before. But, but I think what you're thinking of and referring to goes much further uh, than that does as well. It
4: does, and and I'm I, I would separate you know kind of a marker from a, perf- a performance of acknowledgement mm. versus an actual acknowledgement. I don't think those are the same thing. And you know sometimes you know when we get into you know different disputes with people, our loved ones, you know colleagues, workers, coworkers, etc. You know yeah I hear you sure yeah that was so terrible you know, we always get annoyed when we are in those moments because we're just like, I, I, you're, you're giving me the performance of hearing me, but you're not actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, is something actually going to change here? Um, and so we don't want to hyper, you know, I don't want you to try to reconstruct Paradise Valley, you know, as some kind of uh, Disneyland kind of reconstruction of it. Um, but also just the kind of, you know, state marker, yes, Paradise Valley is here. That's probably not enough either. And so in that way you'd actually would need meaningful kind of engagement with you know the actual former residents and their descendants to actually build something that's somewhere in between um that's authentic and real um has some value has a potential to share some wealth um with those people that there's actually something real it it just can't be a, a stage prop.
0: yeah yeah okay uh uh, Professor Harley Etienne and Professor Brian Boyer. Great to have both of you here to talk about this with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for joining. Thank you.
1: Thank that you. is
0: going to be it for us this week on the show. Come back Monday. When we'll have more great programming here on Detroit Today. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin, our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevathan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WBET in Detroit. And you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.